you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Psalm chapter 2. This is the psalm that we recently sang. Psalm chapter 2, we'll be reading together the entirety of this chapter. I'd like you to focus uh, particularly on what we hear in verse 7. God the Father is speaking to God the Son, and he says to God the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. We're going to be considering what it means that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. What does this mean? Does this have implications on his divinity? So Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Well, please also look with me in your order of worship. Uh, This morning we are confessing together Article 10 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. This is uh, a historic confession of faith that was written in in 1561 in what was then Belgium by a man named Guido de Bray. And it is one of our confessions of faith, meaning we believe that although it's not scripture, although it's not infallible or inerrant, It's, yes, the work of a fallible individual, but it is a faithful expression, articulation, summary of the main truths of the Word of God. So this morning we'll be reciting together Article 10 of the Belgic Confession of Faith. Well, Congregation of Christ, who is Jesus Christ according to his divine nature? We believe that Jesus Christ according to his divine nature, is the only Son of God, eternally begotten, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature. He is one in essence with the Father, co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father, and the reflection of his glory, being in all things like him. He is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. 
Moses says that God created the world. And John says that all things were created by the word which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world by his son. Paul says that God created all things by Jesus Christ. And so it must follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ already existed when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah says that his origin is from ancient times, from eternity. And Hebrews says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. So then, he is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the book of creation, that most elegant book, a book in which all creatures, great and large, are like words and and characters that point us towards your existence, your divinity, and your power and glory. But we thank you most of all that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in Holy Scripture and by your gracious provision have preserved these Holy Scriptures ever since they have been written. We pray this morning that as we turn to consider what your word says about your Son, the second person of the Trinity, that you would uh, continue to build us up in this most holy faith, knowing that it's this Jesus whom we invoke, whom we worship, and whom we serve. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, boys and girls, according to Article 1 of the Belgian Confession, what are we to do with our hearts and mouths? What are we to do with our hearts and mouths? Violet? Very good. We believe in our hearts and confess uh, with our mouths. This is what we are called to do as Christians. Well, according to that same article, what is God? The three S words. What is God? What is God? Micah? Single. Good. Single? Annalise? Simple. Violet? Spiritual. Spiritual. Single, simple, and spiritual. Well, according to the Belgian Confession, how do we come to know God? There are two main books that the Confession speaks of. How do we come to know who God is? Noel? Through the Word. Word. Good. And what else? Annabelle? Creation. Creation. The book of Scripture and then the book of creation. Well, the last uh, few weeks we've spent some time considering some characteristics of Scripture. There are three descriptors or three characteristics that we have considered. So what is Scripture? What is Scripture according to the confession? Violet? Very good, yes. The inspired word of God. This is not man's word. This is God's word. God breathes out Scripture. And because it's breathed out, it's authoritative. It's our ultimate authority within the church. And it is sufficient, sufficient for salvation, sufficient for godly living, and sufficient for telling us how to worship. Well, last week, we considered the Trinity. Does anyone remember what what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Someone summarize? A little bit more difficult. What is the Trinity? 
Violet again? Very good. One essence in three persons. Uh, the beginning of Article 8, we confess that God is one simple essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties. So God is one essence in whom there are three really distinct persons, truly distinct persons. Well, today we're going to continue our consideration of this doctrine of the Trinity and even more specifically look at how the second person of the Trinity fits into this broader doctrine. Who is Jesus? Is he divine? And if he is divine, who is Jesus according to his divine nature? Is he just as much divine as the Father or is he somehow a second-class deity? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus according to his divine nature? Now, something that we confessed last week in Article 9, which is a very important thing for us to remember, is that this doctrine of the Trinity far surpasses human understanding. This doctrine of the Trinity far surpasses human understanding. This point is echoed in Psalm 145, which we read for a call to worship, that God's greatness is unsearchable. You will never be able to fully Wrap your minds around the greatness of our God. This point is further made by one author I was reading this week who said that the reason why we confess this doctrine of the Trinity, the reason why we confess what we confess here in Article 10 about the second person of the Trinity and his eternal generation and begottenness from the Father is out of obedience to God's revelation. It's not because we think that God is some metaphysical, philosophical puzzle that we can put together. It's not because we believe that we can plumb the depths of our incomprehensible God. Rather, it's out of obedience. Obedience to God's revelation. We are called to confess our faith in light of God's revelation. And so we are being obedient as we seek to confess these difficult doctrines. Difficult doctrines that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so as we continue to approach this doctrine, we need to do so with the right expectations. There is a ceiling that our words and our mind will not transcend. There is a ceiling that our words and our mind will not transcend. And so, what we confess in these articles are our best attempt at doing justice to who God is with fallible, finite words. And so, who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus according to his divine nature? Well, one thing that you'll notice here in Article 10 of the Belgic Confession is that the Belgic summarizes a number of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the second person of the Trinity. So the Belgic Confession summarizes a number of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is sometimes described as the only begotten Son of the Father. We read this in Psalm 2, verse 7. Jesus is sometimes described as the image of the Father, as the radiance of the Father, as the word and wisdom of God. Thus, the question that people have been trying to understand and wrap their minds around is how do we interpret these metaphors about the second person of the Trinity? And throughout history, there have been essentially three main views or three main 
ways in which people have sought to interpret these metaphors. Two of these views are heretical, and one view is what we would say orthodox or biblical. And so the first view of the first camp is what is sometimes referred to as modalism. And those who have embraced modalism in the past have seen God as one God. And when scripture speaks about God as three distinct persons, this camp, this view, sees those descriptions as really just referring to God's different modes of interaction with this world. And so essentially this view, this camp, views God as a, a, a shape shifter. He's like an actor with three different masks. Sometimes he puts on the mask of the father. Sometimes he puts on the mask of the son. And other times he puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit. And so this view interprets these metaphors that the Bible gives to the second person of the Trinity as really just one mask that the one God puts on. Modalism then recognizes that God is one, but fails to recognize that God is really, truly, and eternally distinct persons. Three persons. Well, the second view in history is what sometimes referred to as subordinationism. And this is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, or the opposite ditch. This view recognizes that the Bible does speak about God as three distinct persons. However, this view sees God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as being somehow less than God the Father. This view sees God the Son and God the Holy Spirit deserving somewhat less honor and glory and praise than God the Father. Consequently, then, this view interprets these metaphors of the Son as uh, really meaning that the Son is somehow less than the Father. The image is less than the Father himself. The radiance is less than the light source itself. Uh, the Son is less than the Father. And so this view views these metaphors as indicating that the Son is less than the Father, subordinate to the Father. Well, what's the third view? Well, the third view is the view I'd like us to consider here for the remaining our remaining time together. And it's the view that's recorded in our Catholic, lower C Catholic creeds, and it's the view that we confess in Articles 8 through 11 of the Belgic Confession. And so again, how do we understand these metaphors? These metaphors of Jesus being the only begotten Son of the Father, of Jesus being the image of the Father, the radiance of the Father, the word and wisdom of God. How do we understand these metaphors? Well, these metaphors are just that. They're metaphors. They're analogies that the Bible uses. And so, if you take God's, or Jesus' begottenness, that he is the begotten Son of the Father, Jesus possesses this identity in a way that's qualitatively distinct from the way in which we experience fatherhood or parenthood or, or childhood or even the birth of a, a new baby. Qualitatively different. There's a qualitative distinction between the creator and the creature. These are metaphors, creaturely metaphors that the Bible employs so that we can understand something, something of the incomprehensible being of the second person of the Trinity. We have to remember what God says to us through the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? 
And then in Isaiah 55, more, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As I've mentioned oftentimes before, God's revelation to us in his word is like baby talk. It's like you getting down on one knee speaking to a three-year-old child using analogies and metaphors. That's what the Bible is. It's God getting down on one knee, lisping to us with analogies and metaphors, and thus we need to interpret his revelation accordingly. Thus, these, these metaphors are metaphors, and we need to interpret them as such. Well, first, let's take this metaphor of Jesus being the Son. Right? He's the begotten Son of the Father. Now, notice how the Belgic Confession interprets this metaphor. He is eternally begotten of the Father. Try to wrap your mind around that. You know, begotten, that's kind of an old, old term for being generated or, or being born. And the King James Version, if you read the genealogies, it'll say so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. So the Father eternally begot the Son? What does that mean? How can you be eternally generated, eternally begotten? Well, again, we're creatures. Words can only go so far when it comes to describe the incomprehensible being of our God. This identity, though, is unique to the Son. The Father is not begotten, nor is the Holy Spirit begotten. The Son is begotten. Therefore, this metaphor reminds us that Jesus is a distinct member and person of the Trinity. God's not a shapeshifter. He doesn't have three masks. Jesus is really, truly, and eternally a distinct person and member of the Trinity. The Father is not begotten, and the Holy Spirit is not begotten. Jesus is begotten. But yet, this metaphor also teaches us that Jesus shares in the Father's one simple and divine essence. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Father eternally communicates his one simple and divine essence to the Son. And therefore the Son is distinct, but yet shares in the divine essence. Well, the Belgian Confession also references another metaphor that Scripture makes use of. The Belgian Confession describes Jesus as the exact image of the Father. And here, the confession is alluding to Colossians 1.15, which describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the image of the Father. Again, how do we understand this? Well, he is the image of the Father in a way that's qualitatively different than how we, as humans, are Im image bearers of God. However, this, this identity of, of Jesus being the image of the Father is unique to him. The Holy Spirit isn't the image of the Father. The Father isn't the image of himself, the Son. The Son is the image of the Father. And thus, this metaphor reminds us that Jesus is really, truly, and eternally a distinct person and member of the Trinity. Again, Jesus is not just one mask that the one God puts up. He's really, truly, and eternally a distinct member of the Trinity. But yet, this metaphor also reminds us that the Father communicates his one simple and divine essence to the Son. The Son eternally represents the Father in his divine essence. And so, this metaphor again shows us that Jesus is a distinct person, but yet shares in the divine essence. 
Well, the next metaphor that the confession references is that Jesus is the reflection of the Father's glory. And here, the confession is alluding to Hebrews 1.3, how Jesus is the radiance of the glory of the Father. This identity is what, again, is unique to the Son. We're not told that the Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit, excuse me, is the radiance of the Father, and the Father isn't the radiance of himself. The Son is the radiance of the Father, which again reminds us that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is really, truly, and eternally a distinct member of the Godhead. But yet, this metaphor also reminds us that the Son shares in the Father's one simple and divine essence. The Father eternally radiates the Son. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever wondered why in the Nicene Creed we confess that Jesus is light from light. Why do we say that? Jesus is light from light. Well, the authors of the Creed were alluding to Hebrews 1.3, which describes Jesus as a radiance of the Father. The authors of the Creed were alluding to this metaphor and referring to how the relationship between the Father and Son is like the relationship between light and light. The Father eternally radiates the Son. The Son shares in the divine essence. The last metaphor that the confession here in Article 10 references is how John 1.1 refers to Jesus as the Word. Again, this is what is unique to the second person of the Trinity. The Father is not the Word, and nor is the Holy Spirit the Word. The second person of the Trinity is the Word. But yet, but yet, this Word, as we, further, as we read later on in John 1, was God. This Word shares in the Father's one simple and divine essence. The Father eternally speaks and utters his Word. So again, Jesus is really, truly, and eternally a distinct person of the Trinity. God is not a shapeshifter. He's not an actor with three masks. Jesus is a distinct person of the Trinity. But yet, these metaphors uh, teach us that the Son shares in the Father's one simple and divine essence. Now, you may have noticed that I've been repeating that phrase, one simple and divine essence. Our temptation is to think that the Father somehow divides his essence in two, gives half to the Son, and, and keeps the other half for himself. Or, um, better yet, he, he divides his essence into thirds and gives a third to the Son, a third to the Holy Spirit. Well, if God, the Father, did that, then he would no longer be simple. So again, boys and girls, remember what it means for God to be simple? He doesn't have a body or a soul. He can't be divided up into parts. He just is. He's all of his attributes all at the same time. And therefore, the members of the Trinity all share together in God's one, that is to say, simple essence. Well, again, as I mentioned last week, this is difficult for us to comprehend. Um, And again, words can only go so far. That's why the biblical authors had to use metaphors to speak about the second person of the Trinity. And so we are to be content content with what has been revealed to us in this age in God's word, but yet, with hopeful expectation, look forward to that day in which we will see Jesus face to face and understand these things more fully. Well, notice how the Belgic Confession ends here in Article 10. It ends in a wonderful way. 
we confess, so then he, that is to say Jesus, is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. You may recall that at the end of Psalm 2, the psalmist calls us to kiss the Son and to serve him with fear and trembling. We are called, in light of who Christ is in his divine nature, as the begotten Son of the Father, as the image and radiance of the Father, as the word and wisdom of God, we are called to invoke, worship, and serve him. So we are called to invoke. We are called to invoke Christ. What does it mean to invoke Christ? Well, it means that we pray. We pray to Christ. And when we pray, we invoke his name. The only reason why we can be confident that our prayers are heard by God is because Jesus came in the flesh as our mediator. Well, why can you have confidence that what Jesus did for you in his flesh as our mediator has any impact upon your life? Well, because Jesus is the eternal begotten Son of the Father. And so our prayer life stands upon the foundation of Jesus' divine nature. Salvation had to be accomplished by God himself. The Old Testament is very clear that salvation is a divine work. That is why Jesus had to not only be true man, but true God. We also here are called to worship. Worship this true and eternal God. Now, worship is not a means to an end. Sometimes I think we think of worship, even corporate worship, as a means to some greater end that we're called to do out there in this world. No, worship is the great end in itself. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made to worship God. Whenever in the New Testament we get a glimpse of the new creation, what will be going on in heaven, or what is going on in heaven and what will be going on in the new heavens and the new earth. Every time we get a glimpse into that age to come, what we see is that those who are there are engaging in corporate worship. Worship, then, is the great end of human existence. And so, the question that comes to mind is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth, uh, worthy of this, this worship? Worship for all eternity? Well, Revelation 5.12 seems to suggest he is. As we read, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But Jesus is not only worthy because of what he did in his humanity. Jesus is worthy because of who he is in his divinity. He is the eternal, eternally begotten son of the Father. He is the image and radiance of the Father. He is the word and wisdom of God. Well, last of all, we are called to serve this true and eternal God. We are called in response to who Jesus is to give our lives as a thank offering to him. In fact, the author of this confession gave his life as a martyr for this Jesus. Again, is Jesus worth it? Well, based on what we confess, he is. He is the begotten Son of the Father. And so let us give thanks. Let us give thanks to this Jesus whom we invoke, whom we worship, and whom we serve. Let's pray.